Good afternoon, everybody. I hope you're doing well. It's Steph. It is 3 p.m. on Sunday, the March the 4th, and I'm going to finish up this, my take on the theory of why communism or socialism might have got such a better rap than fascism, both of which in my book should have got equally horrible raps. And I'm going to use the word socialism here to denote both communism and socialism, and to not uh, worry too much about differentiating the two because the sort of theories are pretty much the same in their basis. And so one of the things that I wanted to point out uh, yesterday or on Friday when I did a podcast, and I started with the topic but then I ended up not returning to it, was that I said that there was a saying about the communists and the fascists within Germany in the 1930s. And they were actually called beefsteaks. That was sort of the slang for them. And the reason for that was that the Germans uh, who were Nazis, the youth who were Nazis, were called the brown shirts because their uniform was brown. And, of course, those who were communists were into red because it's the sort of color of communism, the color of the Soviet Union. And so they were called beefsteaks because they were, the Nazi ones were called beefsteaks because they were brown on the outside and red on the inside. In other words, they, they could sort of go both ways. They sort of looked like Nazis, but they were very close to communists. And so it was very well understood, the relationship between national socialism and socialism in the 1930s in Germany. It's just that now we've put them at opposite ends of the political spectrum for reasons which I think are fairly clear, or at least will become so as we go forward in this. So I remember one of the first instances that I noticed the real confusion about this issue was that when I was in the debating finals, when I was an undergraduate student, I was a debater, as I'm sure you can imagine, and I was at the Canadian finals in Newfoundland, and I saw a gentleman standing in line in a cafeteria to pick up some food, and he had a a little button lapel with a picture of Marx on it, you know, that that Old Testament biblical picture of Marx with the big beard and the beady eyes. And I just remember being kind of shocked, because, of course, I have some Eastern European in my background. My first name, Stefan, is Eastern European. And so I'd heard some of this kind of stuff through the family, some of the stuff that occurred in Eastern Europe after the Second World War, and I just found it quite shocking. And I found it just astounding that somebody would sort of openly wear a button of Marx and I, I was too young and I wasn't secure enough in my uh, ability to debate and also in my uh, uh, beliefs to confront him. I mean, I would certainly do so now. But I just remember it being astounding. And I do remember wanting to go up and ask this fellow, well, uh, how would you feel if I were wearing a button of Hitler? And you would probably feel pretty astounded and horrified. And just because the victims aren't as vocal as the victims of Hitler doesn't mean that they were any less deserving of humanity or sympathy or understanding. And so this I just found kind of surprising. This was sort of in my early 20s. And I I remember even back then just being astounded at the difference and also having a, a class entitled The Rise of Capitalism and the Socialist Response. And I don't think that you would ever have something like I don't know, the rise of Jewry and the Nazi response, or the rise of freedom and the fascist response, unless it would be to outrightly condemn both Nazism and fascism. But, of course, that's not whatever happens. What happens is you have legitimate courses on socialism, and you have strong socialist elements within the uh, within Western society that are always growing. Like, we, we kicked the butt out of Nazism, and we kind of got it beaten down, except for a few fringe groups, but man, we just can't beat socialism to save our lives. And that's because we do have a lot of moral confusion about socialism. Socialism is sort of viewed as 
a f- kindly, friendly, nice way to deal with the problems of poverty and the violence and brutality that is inherent within socialism, which has been dis- displayed over and over and over again every single time you get a socialist government getting into power, a communist or a government getting into power, all of society turns into a complete bloodbath and the deaths of tens of millions of people ensue and deaths in the most horrible kind of ways we talked about on Friday. And so we just can't uproot this fantasy about socialism from within our midst. And I think that there's some interesting uh, questions as to why that might be the case or what might have been occurring or what might be occurring. So, you know, the other question to answer before we dip into the topic is, well, why, why is the question important at all? It's always, it's always important to ask, is it important? And I would say that, yes, it is very important. One of the things that you will see, both probably within your own nature and within the nature of those you're having conversations with, as you begin to progress forward in an understanding of society, of violence, of pacifism, of rationality, of superstition and religion and state worship and nationalism and racism and classism and all this kind of stuff, is that human nature always wants to have an out. Human nature always wants to grab onto something that avoids the absolute dictates of reason. I'm not saying I'm sure exactly why, but if you know somebody who's in a bad relationship and you say, well, maybe it's not for you, then they're going to say, well, but he does this nice thing or that nice thing, or he's a great guy in this way or a great guy in that way. And people don't want to get all of their fantasies and illusions, especially the destructive ones, they don't want to get them chased down, which is good, because if they did, then Christina would need another occupation. But it's certainly very true when it comes to state power and coercion that it is very hard, and I found this very hard within myself, so I'm not saying that it should be easy for everyone, but it's very hard to corner the fantasy that violence can work and be productive anywhere. To finally nail that fantasy down and eliminate it from your system is so, 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 so important. You can't have a theory of morality or a theory of reality that allows for fantastical or contradictory or nonsensical or illusory elements, you've really got to try and chase down all of your illusions and eliminate them because that's the path to maturity and to wisdom and to compassion and to actually having an effect in a very positive way on the world. And so the reason why I think it's very important to answer this question, why is socialism considered good and fascism is considered bad, Because if any aspect of state coercion or of coercion in general is considered good in any way, then violence is good. Then brutality is good. Then pulling out guns, chasing people down the street, shooting them in the neck, shooting them in the leg is good. And if that's the case, then there's no such thing as morality. There's no such thing as right and wrong. Everything is relative. Everything is subjective. We don't worship anything to do with morality. We simply subject ourselves or subjugate ourselves and lick the boots of those in power and call it good. And that's not particularly a world I want to live in. It's not a view that I would ever subscribe to. And so I think that we need to find wherever people have a soft spot towards violence or control or coercion or brutality or suppression or any of those things. We have to find where people have a soft spot towards these things. And we have to tell them repeatedly and emphatically that it's just not so. That violence never works, except in self-defense on occasion. So I think it's a very important question to answer. If socialism 
is allowed to have any kind of positive moral hue, any kind of it's about niceness or it's about helping people or it's about taking care of the poor or the sick or the old. If any of that is allowed, morality vanishes, objectivity vanishes, rationality vanishes, humanity vanishes into a cloud of blood which we cover up and call virtue. So I think it's very important to answer this question. You can see this in religion. So people say, well, yes, organized religion is bad. And by that they mean that a personal religion, like I worship my typewriter, can be good. They also say, well, you know, uh, okay, Muslim is bad, and, and, and Catholicism has got a bad history. But you know what's a really great religion? It's Buddhism is so nice and sweet and kind, and the Dalai Lama has got these big glasses and a big smile and all this kind of stuff. So they always try to find some place where irrationality can be good, so that they never actually have to face the fact that irrationality always leads to destruction, that irrationality makes people miserable, that irrationality is what people always use to, when they're bullying children, and when the state is bullying its citizens, and when people are being tossed into charnel pits of slaughter that socialistic and fascistic societies represent, or any totalitarian societies. So I think it's very important to chase down any of these kinds of irrationality. The destruction that comes from irrationality and collectivism must always be exposed. And also, it kind of helps to really make sense of the Second World War and of large parts of the 20th century in general. It makes those events, those de terrible disastrous events, that much more comprehensible. And that's kind of what we want. We want the world to make sense. And it really does when you look at it without any sort of historical blinders. I think it does. And it also helps explain the cycle of violence. So uh, if, for instance, there is, and we'll, we'll talk about this logically, right? If there is a relationship between Judaism and communism, or some dominant ideology in communism, but let's just say Judaism for now, if there is a relationship between Judaism and communism in its origins according to specific people who were Jewish and, of course, large numbers of people who were non-Jewish all long dead, and if there was uh, a lack of criticism on the part of intellectuals, a lot of whom were Jewish, of communism as it began, then it helps to explain the cycle of violence. Therefore, if you get a group that has some tangential responsibility for the creation and dissemination and lack of criticism towards one of the most brutal ideologies in history, then you get a cycle of violence. So you start with the growth of communism in the West, and of course it was never supposed to take root in Russia, it was only supposed to take root in an industrial country, the only unfortunate problem being that the industrial countries treated their workers better than any other societies ever have throughout history, if you have any doubts about, about that. Uh, talk to a serf. In fact, I think it was Dostoevsky's father who treated his serfs so brutally and was such a raging alcoholic that he was actually murdered by his own serfs. His own slaves murdered him by forcing him to drink vodka until he died. So you can just imagine the kind of lives that these people had. Or you can talk to a serf in the Middle Ages, or you can talk to a slave uh, in the South or, or in Africa. Uh, there's lots of uh, terrible things that have occurred to the sort of, quote, workers in history, and capitalism was the first system to the free market, classical liberalism, was the first system to raise them out of this endless penury that they'd been locked into in a lightless dungeon of poverty and predictability all throughout history. And so unfortunately, <laughs> although Marx confidently and openly predicted that the only way that that um, uh, communism was ever going to occur was as an inevitable growth or an inevitable result 
of the expansion of capitalism, it actually took root. The very first communist revolution was in Mexico, which of course is one of the reasons why Trotsky fled there before Stalin's assassin. ICE picked him to death in 1936. Uh, I think it was 1908 or something like that. It was the first communist revolution was in Mexico, and then the next one was in uh, 1917 in Russia, and heavily funded by uh, uh, and uh, uh, brought about by the German government, as I mentioned in the last podcast, to get Russia out of the war in the First World War. So if it's true that a certain group in society is associated, rightly or wrongly, with the growth of communism, and then that group, uh, among many others, is targeted as a result of that or as a result of that perception, it helps us to understand the cycle of violence. Of course, it doesn't justify anything in regards to the cycle of violence, but it does help us to understand it. And it also helps us to understand just why it's so important to rail against false and hideous ideologies, because if you don't, then you really do risk the result of them being considered moral, which completely undermines people's ability to fight against them. Whatever we perceive as virtuous, we cannot fundamentally oppose in our hearts. So I think it is important to answer this question of why socialism is considered to be moral. So, as you probably have understood by now, I'm interested in examining the question, to what degree did Judaism contribute to the rise of communism? And I think it's important to explain before I start into the logical possibilities, that it doesn't matter whether it's true or not. And I know I don't say that very often, and I certainly don't say it lightly. But it really doesn't matter whether Judaism is associated with the origins of communism or not. What does matter is, did people believe that? And that's as important in some ways as whether it was true or not, certainly in the realm of propaganda and in whipping people into a hysteria and whipping people into warlike capacity for destruction and genocide and bottomless pits of murder and destruction. It's important to understand what propaganda means. It's not important to understand whether it's true. I mean, it is to some degree, but when you're talking about the effects in history, it's more important to focus on propaganda than truth, because propaganda is what caused people to act in a particular way. So if the German population in general perceived that the rise of communism within Russia was a Jewish phenomenon, or a Jewish-inspired, or to a large degree, Jewish-led and defended phenomenon, and if they then further perceived that this Jewish philosophy or this Jewish ruling class or elite was systematically slaughtering tens of millions of Christians, then we can't understand the rise of Hitler, we can't understand the rise of genocide within Germany or genocidal tendencies or facts within Germany if we can't understand the German perception uh, in the 1920s. Germany and Russia have had a very close relationship throughout history. In many Russian novels, you'll come across German characters, and I can't tell you exactly why, but they have been. So the Germans were perfectly aware what was going on, for a large part, within Russia. And so it may have not been too difficult for German propagandists to make the case that Germany was now threatened by a highly expansionistic communist dictatorial system whose leaders were believed to be Jewish or largely Jewish and whose sole goal at times seemed to be the wholesale slaughter of millions of Christians. 
And so if you understand that Germany was sort of looking to the east and seeing this black cloud of genocide against Christians arising in Russia and was entirely aware that the Russian leadership continually talked about the need for a world revolution. They were not interested in countries because it was an international revolution that was uh, being, being, uh, being uh, aimed for then the Germans are going to be very afraid of this revolution rolling across their borders and engaging in wholesale genocide of all of the uh, local Christians. So that's their sort of uh, perception. And then they look to the West, and what do they see? They saw all of these Western intellectuals slavishly licking the boots of Stalin and of, uh, uh, and of Lenin, and talking about how wonderful and beautiful and inevitable and fantastic and amazing and heavenly and f fabulous the Russian communist system was. And they also knew that uh, Western capitalism, uh, through uh, its corruption, through the state power that arose in the uh, First World War and post-First World War period, the power of the right to print money, the power of the right to set inflation, uh, the, 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 uh, all of, all of the, um, the expansions of state power that occurred in the West, and they're all then sucked into the hyperinflation in Germany in the 1920s, middle class is completely wiped out, you have the mad stock market boom of the late 1920s culminating in 1929, and then you enter into a decade-long depression, which seemed to, I mean, it seemed to be the end. It seemed to be the end of classical liberalism, the end of, of the free market, the end of capitalism. And with all of the Western intellectuals talking about how great Russia was, with the entire Russian <laughs> continent now under the grip of a Soviet-style Russian uh, communist dictatorship, with genocide occurring in the East and slavish adulation of those genocidal murderers in the West, I think that Germany really did feel caught. That's sort of my understanding from uh, conversations that I've had over the years and research that I've done for my last novel. Germany really did feel caught. Then, so this is why the, Germany really felt that it wanted sort of li living room, and it wanted to what what it called Lebensraum, which is the expansion uh, of a buffer state or the creation of buffer states between itself and Soviet Russia. And it really felt it was a kill or be killed situation uh, with regards to Soviet Russia and the German population, to some degree. Uh, I'm mean, obviously not uh, every German, but not an inconsequential number either. Felt. Uh, or believed that this uh, communist dictatorship was associated with Judaism. Now, to me, there are four logical possibilities to this. Uh, there may be more. I mean, obviously, I, <laughs> I'm no oracle or comprehensive fountain of truth, but these are sort of the four that uh, possibilities that I see if we're looking at this question of why is communism given a better rap than fascism. And uh, so in the question of relationship between Judaism and communism, there's sort of four possibilities. One, there's no relationship whatsoever between Judaism and communism, and nobody ever believed it, and this is just, uh, <laughs> I had a dream, or somebody slipped me a pill, and <laughs> I went on a journey, and <laughs> I just made up all this stuff, and, and that's fine, that's certainly a possibility. Uh, so uh, then, of course, we're going to have to look elsewhere for the explanation, or any possible explanation, as to why communism is viewed as something better than fascism. Uh, fine. Uh, let me know. Uh, I'll be happy to uh, to talk about uh, being uh, corrected and, and happy to be corrected in uh, future podcasts. So if I'm completely incorrect, nobody ever believed in this relationship and this relationship never existed, uh, by all means, let me know. Now, the second is that there is no relationship whatsoever between Judaism and the foundation of communism or early communist leadership and so on. 
But people believed that there was, or, or that they believed that there is. Now, then we start to get into an interesting examination of cause and effect in history. So let's just say that there was no relationship whatsoever between Judaism and communism, but people seized upon this, that the Germans seized upon this to fan and inflame and awaken the latent anti-Semitism within the German population, and of course it's not only within the German population. They grabbed onto this and they said, ah, communism is a Jewish phenomenon and let's all get together and hate the Jews and blah, 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 blah. And that's certainly possible. I, I can't claim with any uh, a shred of certainty that I know for a fact whether there's any relationship between Judaism and, uh, and communism. And so it's certainly possible that it was all simply propaganda. Now, if that's the case, then another interesting question arises. Thus, when you look at another piece of anti-Semitic propaganda, namely... Uh, the denial of the existence of the Holocaust. Uh, this is David Irving, I think, had a book about it, and it's Ernst Zundel up here in Canada. So a bunch of crazy white supremacists slash Nazis slash whoever believe that there's no such thing as the Holocaust, that it was all made up by Ben-Gurion to help the UN ratify the state of Israel in 1948 and so on. And it's all made up and faked and all that. So these crazies uh, are roundly... Uh, exposed, denounced, uh, disproven within the popular media. I mean, long before I became a philosopher, I knew about the existence of something like Holocaust denial and how bad and crazy it was. So when a certain slight is brought against a particular group, that group generally tends to fight back with all the resources at its disposal, and rightly so. I mean, if somebody says that uh, you know, you're know you a bad guy when you're not a bad guy, then you should do everything in your power to restore your reputation. Reputation is very important. So, where a an unjust accusation is hurled at a group like uh, the Jews, then they fight back, and rightly so. But you know about it. And I've, until I started doing research into this, and this is sort of based on some family history, but once I started doing research into it, I came across this question, and it seemed to me such a large and important question to be asked and to be answered, that I was amazed, astounded, blown away by the fact that I had never ever heard about this as a question or as an issue. It explained so much, it made sense of so much, not whether it was true or not, but that it was believed, and what might have motivated the Germans to this horrible, raging anti-Semitism and this, the, the, the genocide of, of the Holocaust, or I actually sort of hate to call it the Holocaust because it wasn't like there was only one, right? A Holocaust, uh, the Armenians and the, the Kulaks and, uh, and uh, all of the other uh, genocides that occurred in the 20th century. I don't want to give the, the, the word the to, to one of them, but let's just say the Holocaust. Uh, what is it that could have caused this to occur? Why did the Germans just wake up one day, uh, as is sort of mentioned in, in history? Well, there was economics, and, and there was uh, this, and there was that, uh, the inflation, and the depression, and so on. Well, yeah, okay, so Austria went through exactly the same thing, and was the birthplace of Hitler, and also didn't become a crazy sort of uh, mad, genocidal, murdering country. In fact, it was taken over in the Anschluss in 1938 by uh, Germany, and was not happy about it. So, um, if... A, an anti-Semitic charge is made against the Jewish culture, or any culture, and is demonstra demonstrably ridiculous, then that charge tends to get refuted, and refuted openly. In fact, 
I think that it is to the benefit of certain communities to be attacked and to openly and roundly refute whatever that attack is, because it makes the next attack that much less believable. So, more power to them. I think that's fantastic. Uh, good for them. They should do it. But, I never heard of this one. And that raises my suspicions a little bit about what's been going on. Just a little bit, not much. Because, <laughs> again, it's so hard for me to figure out exactly what has been going on. But, if a motivation for an entire world war, if the motivation for an entire evil genocide perpetrated upon European Jewry and, of course, lots of other people who got caught up in the, in the nets, if the motivation for that has never, ever been brought to the light of day, and I, I mean, I know a fair amount about history. I mean, I get a master's degree in history. I've read it for many, many years, but until I began digging into certain sources, uh, I just had no idea. And that, to me, is kind of important. The fact that it's not there is important. We know this as libertarians, that when we say something as obvious as the state is violence, taxation is theft, uh, people's eyes, they do that sort of Roger Rabbit boing straight out, and they just either reject it openly or can't comprehend But it's such an obvious thought that the fact that it's never spoken about in the entire 14-odd years of compulsory state education that the basic moral nature of the state is not mentioned, and it's not the most complicated idea in the world. Does, does the government have a police force? Do they throw you in jail? If you don't obey the laws, then the government is forced. The fact that such an obvious idea is never mentioned is important. It's part of what we call propaganda, for very obvious ideas or challenges or responses to never be mentioned is important. Now, there's uh, the third possibility is that there is a relationship between Judaism and communism, but no one has ever figured that out. Or no one, I don't know, except I don't, except like three guys, have ever figured that out. And therefore, it's just not uh, talked about because nobody's thought of it. Well, I don't think that's the case, because in the research that I've done about the sort of crazy German nationalists and the propaganda that was going on in Germany in the 1920s uh, and uh, early 1930s, early to mid-1930s, uh, this connection was made by, you know, let's just call them crazy, lying nationalist Nazis. That's fine. But this connection was made, and it was considered to be a pretty important uh, connection. And, of course, when you are a propagandist, you don't just make stuff up out of thin air. You don't say that we're the best group ever because 12 le leprechauns stood in a row, did a jig, and told me so. Because people are just going to say, okay, <laughs> you know, maybe we'll up the meds and we'll talk later. What people want to do when they're a propagandist is they want to hook in to something that people kind of believe already or kind of have a theory about already and then expand it. This doesn't mean that what the, what the propagandist is saying is true, but it has to have resonance with the population as a whole. And Germany faced an enormous threat from the expansion of Russia, as it has in the past, and may again, who knows, but Germany faced an enormous threat, and Germany knew about the genocides against the Christians, In they also knew that Western intellectuals did, were denying that such genocides were actually existing. And of course, it's sad uh, and bitterly funny to me that to be called a Holocaust denier is about the worst thing that can ever occur and of, uh, to you as a, as, a, as a moral human being, and it is stone evil to deny the existence of a genocide. So it would seem to me kind of important to have a look at the history of the intellectuals in the 1920s and the 1930s to find out just who was denying the existence of 
the Russian Holocaust uh, against the, uh, the the Kulaks and the the bourgeoisie and so on, because that was a very common phenomenon. But that's not something that's part of our history either, uh, because we uh, have this whole thing where uh, socialism is is not uh, really bad, or uh, yeah, but fascism is 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 really bad. So that's the, another possibility. There is a relationship between Judaism and communism, but no one ever believed that there was. And, and therefore, it may be possible that it's not really talked about to throw people off the scent. I don't think this one's too likely, because if nobody ever believed there was a relationship, then uh, it would never even be a topic. It would never have come up as part of the propaganda in Germany. Uh, it would never have sort of statistics gathered about it, which you can find in you know, not disreputable sources and so on. So I don't consider that too likely. Now, the other uh, fourth possibility is that there is a relationship between Judaism and communism, and people do know about it, but they're afraid to talk about it because that would be viewed as anti-Semitic. And again, I, whether that sort of feels true or doesn't, it doesn't really matter. I think it's an interesting possibility. I certainly know that I feel probably more nervous talking about this topic than I have uh, about any other topic that I have talked about to date. And I've talked about some pretty intense topics. Uh, this one is a very uh, scary area to talk about for me. And uh, maybe it is for you. <laughs> to maybe you have a, the heart of a lion and I have the heart of a mouse. And I'm afraid of talking about this topic for no reason. But I do feel that the, um, you know, the, the, the PC, the politically correct cops, have their sirens going right behind me. And I'm about to get pulled over, patted down, and probably subjected to some fairly violent and rubber glove involving <laughs> cavity searches. So I do feel a little bit nervous talking about it. And I think that that's because it seems like a very dangerous topic because some of the conclusions that hasty and judgmental and I think not particularly rational souls could jump to is either that I'm blaming the Jews for the Holocaust or I'm, uh, I'm justifying what the Nazis did or anything like that. And that's not uh, it, it at all. It certainly is not. It would be completely crazy and immoral to, to hold those perspectives. I think that it is interesting to understand what happens when a genocide occurs. So, you know, the first major, gen major genocide was the Turks and the Armenians, the turn of the century, last century. The second major genocide, not counting the, the First World War, uh, was the Russians, and it was by far the worst uh, until you come around to uh, China in the 1950s. Uh, by far the worst genocide, and, and the, the slaughterhouse of Russia throughout the 20th century staggers the imagination. You can never uh, come even close to figuring out just the horror. You could live a million years and die a, a thousand deaths a day, and you wouldn't be close to understanding the, 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 the horror of the entire society under under uh, communism, 80 million people murdered in the Russian system alone, at least that's an estimate, and it, that's the people who lived weren't having a great time either. I mean, when 80 million people get murdered, it's not like everyone else is like, oof, hey, somebody missing from the table? I mean, they actually face the horror of surviving in a situation where people are being killed uh, by the millions, and entire generations of people lived and died with complete human potential and, and capacity for joy and uh, wiped from the face of the earth completely. So uh, the moral horror of that is astounding. And what happens when the causes of the uh, slaughterhouse of the Soviet Union are not directly examined? 
Now, I'm not saying that it's entirely related to Judaism either. Christians have had a very strong relationship to socialism throughout a good chunk of the history of the 19th and the 20th century. So it's not just a matter of um, uh, sort of Judaism taking the rap. Uh, Christians have been very sympathetic towards socialism as well. The idea of a central power which takes people's income and redistributes it for, quote, the benefit of all, which is very similar to the church, is not that foreign to Christians. However, uh, Christianity does not have an atheistic tradition. Uh, Judaism, on the other hand, has a very strong atheistic tradition. In fact, the number of Jews who are practicing religious uh, people is in the minority, and it's by far in the minority. And therefore, it seems hard to associate Christianity as strongly with communism as Judaism. Because, of course, uh, you can't be an atheist Christian, but you can certainly be an atheist Jew. I mean, there's no particular problem with that at all. And, in fact, the majority of people who are Jews are not uh, religious in that sense, or in any sense, really. So, if you can't sort of trace back the intellectual history of what produced the first unbelievably large-scale genocide after the Armenians in the 20th century, then you can't trace the ripple effect of that throughout the 20th century. And you can't understand the Second World War if you don't understand the slaughterhouse of the Soviet Union in the 1920s and how much that that scared the Lederhosen off the Germans, and not just the Germans, of course. Christianity also has a very strong anti-communist sector, uh, movement within it. And of course, Christianity is anti-communist to some degree because communist is atheistic. The communist philosophy is atheistic and therefore is a direct competitor to the survival of the church. It's not even like another religion. It's like atheism. It's like (laughs) you can't have a religion within a communist society other than the mad social religion of the state. So Christianity doesn't have as much sympathy towards communism and is quite anti-communist, even though it can be quite pro-socialist in many ways, because communism is a direct competitor in a way that another monotheistic religion like uh, Islam would be, insofar as it's, well, even in Islam you can be a Christian in certain parts of Islam, Islamic countries, but you cannot be a practicing Christian in a communist dictatorship. And therefore, um, you just don't see the kind of blankness uh, when it comes to discussing the crimes of communism among Christians that you do among uh, other sectors of the population. So, if you can't figure out where all of this stuff came from, then it's very hard to figure out how intelligently to oppose it. And so I think that's uh, very important to understand. So, finally, sort of when we talk about this relationship, the Judaism and communism, in no way meant to talk about Jews as a whole. We're talking about philosophical movements. Now, within Judaism, there's a strong atheistic component. There is a very strong communalistic uh, component. You look at the kibbutzes in Israel, and you can see examples of communal living and the enshrinement of the principle of from each according to their ability to each according to their means. And there is a very strong uh, traditions within uh, Judaistic philosophy of, you know, to be a mensch, to be a good man, is to take care of others in your community, to be charitable, to be helpful, to be generous, to be kind. And, of course, that's great, as I mentioned before, when you're talking about private charity, and it's a complete nightmare when you're talking about state coercion. 
So I think that, uh, to sort of sum it up, this is nothing against any particular Jew, nothing against any particular Christian, nothing against any particular member of uh, particular groups, but if you want to understand the 20th century, you need to understand the cycle of violence that begins with... Well, it begins in the 19th century with the institution of state schools. It was the number one cause of all of the violence within the 20th century was the institutionalization and enslavement of children in forced and coerced state schools. As I've mentioned before, it's not more than a generation after the institution of state education that you start to get people who are perfectly primed a generation and a half for World War I. And it's just the slaughterhouse of the 20th century has an enormous amount to do with the indoctrination of children that occurred in the uh, institutionalization of state, state schools. Of course, Judaism, I don't believe, had anything to do with that, so <laughs> that's really the fault of the Christians and of the lazy classical liberals who didn't go to the barricades intellectually to stop this. So you can't understand the growth of violence without first looking at the public school system, and then you really can't understand it until you understand the uh, sort of uh, the moral or epistemological roots of communism, and its relationship to Judaism is interesting, but whether it's true or not, I don't know. But it is true that it was believed. And the fact that it was believed caused a cycle of violence to swing the other way. So you have all of these communists in Russia killing off all these Christians, and then people say, ah, they're Jews. And then you have everybody storming all over Europe with anti-Semitic hatred and virulence and evil and violence. And then, of course, the pendulum swings back the other way, and you get the creation of Israel and all the problems that that um, creates. As a Jewish friend of mine said once, he said, um, I mean, of all the places, he's uh, an atheist uh, uh, Jew, and he said, my God, of all the places to create Israel, why would you want to put the greatest concentration of Jews in the first Jewish state right smack dab in the middle of all the Muslim countries that want to kill all the Jews. And I said, well, uh, one, because they have these religious imperatives that say that's the Holy Land, which is insane to begin with. And number two, if you are the Jewish or Israeli government, like all governments in the world, what you really thrive on is the uh, creation of enemies external to yourself. So you can uh, ask for money and ask for sacrifice and throw kids into the military and you can get donations from all over the world. And so, as (laughs) as he'd suggested, Israel should have, he said, you know, after the Holocaust, there was such sympathy towards uh, the Jews that we could have asked for a canton of Switzerland and been given that. And they already have 35 cantons to begin with. I wouldn't even miss one. So we could have all just settled down in the lovely uh, Alps in Switzerland and had a wonderful old time and not worry about ringed, being ringed by all of these crazy Muslim states that want us all killed. And I said, well, sure, but I mean, that would... Uh, yeah, it would not have really helped uh, those who want military power and those who want uh, to create the endless and ultimate scare scenarios of instant engulfment by historical enemies. And so I'm sure that one of the reasons was both because of the Zionist imperative of the Holy Lands being where the Jews needed to be, and also the political and secular motive of wanting external enemies to continually be able to gather resource, resources from everyone around the world who's sympathetic to the cause that would sort of have something to do with it. But of course, the pendulum that begins with the public schools and then swings back to uh, the murderers uh, of uh, the Soviet uh, empire and swing back to the genocides under the Nazis and then, in, to a smaller degree, have swung back in the uh, problems in, uh, between Jew- uh, the Israel and Palestine. That you, you can't sort of understand these phenomena, these incredibly broad historical movements 
unless you understand the foundations and the ideas behind them. Because ideas, which everybody inherits uh, and which motivates just about everyone except we few group of original thinkers, and by we, I don't mean me and some other guy, I mean you, <laughs> me and you who's listening to this, or you and I, uh, if we don't understand these things, then the 20th century makes no sense, human nature uh, makes no sense, and the deaths of 170 or more million people make no sense. And so I think, even though it's a scary topic to talk about, even though I could be accused of the worst things in the world, which has nothing to do with my motive, I still think that it's important to talk about. I certainly appreciate you listening to this, and please let me know exactly, or even approximately, where I've got it horribly wrong. Now, I'm going to count out slowly, <laughs> because I've had a number of complaints from people who I think are using iTunes, that w- what's happening is for ten, they get, I get cut off 10 seconds before the end. Now, I mean, I know there's only about 200 hours of podcasts at the moment, so 10 seconds, <laughs> a 10-second cutout is critical because I really save all the end of the... What I do is I encapsulate my real point in the last 10 seconds and then I shriek it very quickly. In fact, it sounds almost exactly like a fax. In fact... If you plug it up to a fax, anyway. So what I'll do is I'll count out slowly so that those who are using iTunes, uh, or I think there was one MP3 Pro or something like that was one other player that had a problem, you can let me know if you're getting to the end or not. So here's, here's your countdown. Close your eyes. The operation won't take a moment. Just breathe deeply. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, one. Ah, launch Houston. Wait, <laughs>